0: Uh, basically, wipeout is a is a solid hour of watching people get knocked off of stuff. Okay, I mean that's 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 basically what it's about. Either they get knocked off or they fall off. Uh, and, and what's even better is that they usually land in like muddy water or foam or some kind of disgusting thing. And so and so here they are. They're all covered in mud and and they're trying to get through this obstacle course. In fact, the premise of the show is is to get through the obstacle course. Uh, the fastest, and whoever does that, they actually have a, uh, I think it's a fifty thousand dollar prize or something for the person. But but none of that really matters. I mean, what makes the show good is watching people get knocked down, uh, you know, and falling into mud. It's just, it's just really cool. And so and so because it's Father's Day and. Um, uh, honestly, more accurately, simply because I can. Uh, we're all going to watch about two minutes of wipeout here this morning, all right? So go ahead and, and run that clip, Aaron. See if you enjoy this. The summer smash is back. Season premiere, Wednesday, May 27th, <laughs> <on ABC. laughs> All right, so you can all pray for me later. Um, but I love it. I mean, there's just something funny about watching people get knocked out, especially when they're not expecting it, you know? And uh, so thank you. Thank you for indulging me in that this morning. Um, now, a little humor to... Uh, to introduce a very serious topic. Friends, listen, when it comes to living the Christian life um, and standing for God, what we just watched there for the last two minutes happens way too often. I, I mean, I, from where I stand, it-, it just seems to me like for believers, they're falling down all the time. The truth is, uh, when a believer gets knocked down, when they take a, a, a fall spiritually, uh, the reality is it, it's it's not funny at all. Um, in fact, it's incredibly painful to watch, not only uh, typically affecting that person, but you see this ripple effect uh, affecting others and those around them. And so that's one of the reasons why for the last six weeks we've been uh, working through this series that I've simply called uh, rock-solid faith, and really in search of biblical truths that will help us uh, develop spiritual stability uh, in a world that often seems to rock our faith. I mean, you just pick up a newspaper headline today, and, and, and you read some of that, and, and, and time and again, I'm telling you, if you're not holding on to something, uh, something solid, you're going to find your faith rocked. Watch the evening news sometime. Maybe for you, it's, it's not the headlines, but it's a, it's a family situation or a, or, or a marriage crisis, and you're in it, and, and your faith is being shaken. Or, or maybe for others, you're, you're out of work, or it's somebody at work, right? And your boss, it's your boss, and he's, he's pressuring me to compromise. Or, or it's my business partner, and he wants me to do something that I'm just really not comfortable with. Or it's my boyfriend, and he's, he, he's pushing me uh, to the limits, or pushing me over the limits. Or it's my spouse, and she's just impossible to live with, and somehow I have to get out of this situation. Uh, whether it's right or wrong, I, I, I don't care anymore. I'm being pushed uh, to compromise. Or for others of you, it's like, you know what, I've been praying about this thing for months. and It doesn't seem like God is listening, and I'm about ready to take my own steps to resolve that. For many of us here this morning, if we were to be honest, we'd say, you know what? Often, often, I find my, my faith uh, shaking. That ground that I was standing on yesterday that seemed rather solid, uh, today it's, it's starting to rock, and so I'm wondering, h- how do I hang on here? How do I keep my faith when my world is falling apart? How do I, how do I keep from falling off this thing? How do I keep from getting knocked off into the mud? How do I keep from giving in? Especially when I see other believers all around me falling down time and again. I mean, bottom line, how do I stand for God? How do I stand for God at my house when the pressure's on? How do I do that? Well, that's the answer we're going after this morning. So why don't you get hold of a Bible and open to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We've been working our way through the book of Daniel. We're up to chapter 6 here this morning. I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to grab a pew Bible and uh, follow along. You'll get the the story that way. If you just take a Bible and you break it open in the center, you're going to be to uh, Isaiah and just go a little bit to the right. There's a big book called Jeremiah, a little one, Lamentations, another big one, Ezekiel, and then you're right into the book of Daniel there. And I just encourage you to get that open in front of you. And uh, just so you know where we're heading here this morning, uh, we're going to work our way through this entire story, okay? We're going to go down through all 28 verses, verse by verse, uh, and then I'm going to come back at the end and try and give you some uh, practical, clear uh, how-to steps uh, in regard to standing for God. And so hopefully when we get to the end of this this morning, uh, you've, you've got some things that, that, that will help you to stand uh, for God in this, in this coming week. Now, just to remind you of the context, uh, things have been changing pretty quickly here in Babylon over these last couple of weeks. Uh, if you remember at the beginning of last week, Nebuchadnezzar had died, right that guy that we talked about for four or five weeks uh, he 's passed off the scene uh, another uh, uh, a number of years go by that that if you remember that proud uh, party animal by the name of Belshazzar, he was on the throne the beginning of last week. We got to the end of last week. Uh, Belshazzar was uh, killed. He was taken away. Uh, that whole Babylonian empire actually came to an end uh, at the end of last week. And so, and, and so this morning, it, it's like a brand new day in Babylon. City's still there. Daniel's still there. In fact, he's probably 85 years old at this point. Uh, he's still there, but it's a new empire. The Medes and the, and the Persians have taken control uh, in Babylon. And what you need to know this week is that the guy in charge in the city of Babylon is a guy by the name of King Darius. King Darius is now on the throne. So, chapter 6, verse 1, it begins like this It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. And the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. All right, you need to understand the, the political structure here. Uh, Darius is a guy that kind of likes flowcharts, okay? And, and so when he gets to like 24 Sussex Drive, he's going to reorganize. We're going to get things kind of in, in order here. And so Darius is the king. He's probably under King Cyrus. I'm not going to get into all that this morning. Darius is the guy that's, that, that's ruling, though, here in Babylon. Under Darius are these three administrators, so you got the king there and then you got these three administrators, one of whom is Daniel, and then under, underneath those three administrators are 120, uh, these guys called satraps, now you say satrap, what in the world is a satrap, when I first read that I thought it sounds like something that you maybe use to catch mice in, but um, see a, a, a satrap uh, is just another level of governing official. I mean, it's kind of like our MPPs, right? They govern over an area. That's, that's what a satrap does. They, they represent an area. And so there's 120 of these guys. They're accountable to that next level. They're accountable to the administrators. Uh, but notice verse 3. Here, here's where the conflict begins for Daniel. Verse 3, it says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators, there's three of them, He so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom, promotion coming. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, just picture this for a second. Um, Here's Daniel. He shows up for work on time uh, every morning. He's honest, he's got some talents, he's got some abilities. Uh, he does his job incredibly well. God's given him some gifts. Uh, but not only that, what it's, what it's really referring to here is, is character issues. Uh, Daniel's a, a man of integrity. He's not corrupt in, in any way. Uh, he's not negligent. When, when you ask Daniel to do something, Daniel does it. You can count on it, getting done. You don't have to phone him and remind him. It's, you just tell him and it's, it's done. He, he, he does it well. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And so his boss, the king, notices this and he plans this promotion. It's like, this is, a, this is a guy that I need to move up. Now, I don't know about your experience, but I think that's pretty common um, in, in the workplace today, right? If a guy does a good job and I, you know, as, as his boss, you happen to notice that person doing a good job and there's a, a position higher up in the company, chances are that's the guy that you're, you're going to go for, right? I mean, nothing too uh, unusual about that. But see, the problem here is that those other guys are jealous. And rather than see Daniel as being an opportunity for them to maybe up the bar a little bit, it's like, look, this, this Daniel guy, he's making all the rest of us look bad. I hate that. So we've got to dig up some dirt on this guy. Somebody's got to have something on this guy. I mean, there's got to be something problem is they can't find anything they watch him and they can't find any corruption in his character and so they go to plan b in verse 6 it says so the administrators and the satraps went as a group just make note of that they go together as a group you'll see that you'll see that over and over here uh, in contrast to daniel who's who's all alone I say remember that because often when you're standing for God, it feels like that. Uh, typically in our situation, it's not the case, but, but here it is. Daniel is really all alone, and I think that says something about his character here. Picture this. 120 of these guys, right? 120 satraps. Here they come uh, up the sidewalk of the palace, and it says, uh, They went as a group to the king. They said, O King Darius, live forever. Of course, that's how you always address the king back then. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed, we've all agreed, king, uh, that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, important to realize for the Persians, thrown into the lion's den was the normal thing you did for punishment. If you broke the law, you went to the lion's den. It was interesting. We've been talking about the uh, the Babylonians, and they would send people to a fiery furnace. That was their that was their capital punishment the persians come into power they have a god that they know by god of fire and so they see burning someone as actually an abomination so we're not going to burn people we're going to dig a big hole in the ground we're going to put some lions in there and and if somebody you know breaks the law that's 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 what we will do now i know that sounds rather bizarre to us right i mean that's just weird that you throw somebody into a lion's cage but You need to realize, way back then, that's what they did. I mean, it's just what they did. Uh, Same as praying to the king. 2,500 years ago, in Persian culture, they did stuff like that. It would be normal to deify the king, to have people bow down to the king. They bowed down to all kinds of other stuff, so why not bow down to the king as well? So, So what I want you to understand here, there's nothing really unusual about the request or the punishment. You see, so often these... Old Testament stories sound so removed from us today because we just don't do it like this. Uh, but I'm telling you, ev- even, though, even though methods may have changed, what you'll discover time and again in the Old Testament stories is that people haven't changed very much. They're Still very much the same. And so this jealous group, they go to the king, and they suggest this new law, they say, look, no praying for 30 days unless it's to the king. In verse 8, they kind of up that suggestion to a command and they say, Now king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And sadly, without taking any time to really consider the implications of this, King Darius, verse 9, it says, So King Darius, put the decree in writing. Here's the question of the morning. How will Daniel respond to that? How will Daniel respond? I mean, clearly, this is crunch time. It's like either I do what the king says and I knock off praying to my God for 30 days or I continue doing what I'm doing and I face the lion's den, one or the other. I get eaten by lions. Now, you need to realize that that for Daniel here, he, he, he could probably hear the lions growling I mean, this is a real situation. I, I'm sure Daniel had probably watched them throw people into that pit. He, he knows. See, for Daniel, this is no, this is no hypothetical. I, I wonder what I would choose if uh, situation. He's in it. This is real life for Daniel. This, this is happening. Interesting, this cute little Sunday school story that we call Daniel in the lion's den that we just so love to tell our children. Um, I thought I'd do a little research last week on, on what the actual reality of that might be like. Um, so I did some research on how lions go about killing and eating their prey, just to bring some reality to the situation. Here's what I found. A lion usually hooks its claws into the prey's skin, throws it to the ground, and kills it by biting. Since lions have teeth designed for tearing rather than chewing, they typically tear away large chunks of meat and swallow them whole. Lions also use their tongues, which are coarse like sandpaper, to scrape the meat off the bones. You say, Jim, why on earth are you telling me all this? I'm telling you this because, see, too often we miss the reality here. This is real. This is what's happening. today. Th- he's, he, he's observed this before. It's a real situation. And so we read this story through and then we find ourselves in some sort of pressure situation and it's like, God, I, I can't handle this. God, this is just too hard. You, you can't expect me to choose right here, God. This is just too hard. Nobody would choose right in this situation. Loved one, what I want you to realize is that Daniel has been there. He's been in one of those situations. And what Daniel did, you and I can do. We tend to think of people in the Old Testament as being these great heroes. Daniel is a man like you and I. And what Daniel did, we can do. Notice verse 10. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published... When he learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. We'll come back to that verse and talk a bit more about it in a minute. I, I want you to underline those words: uh, "just as he has done before," just as he had done before. If you don't mind marking in your Bible, underline that. You can do it in the Pew Bible. That's important, just as he had done before. Verse 11, then these men, notice, went as a group. So here's the little I Spy Club, right? They're still hanging out together as a group. And uh, remember, there's 120 of them, so not such a little group. Uh, It says, they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they're checking out Daniel's house, and they See him up there praying, and they're listening. I wonder, who is he praying to? Is he talking to the king here? No, he's asking God for help. Verse 12, so they went to the king. It's kind of funny, really, when you think about these guys, right? I mean, you know, do they have nothing better to do with their time, right? Oh, let's go and see what Daniel's praying about. Well, you know, then, oh, let's go to the king and tell the king, right? So, verse 12, they go to the king. And they spoke to him about his royal decree. They say, Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any man, uh, any God or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the den? Didn't you do that, King? Didn't you write that out? Didn't you get that done? And the king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Uh, Then they said to the king, here it is. Here's what these guys have been longing to say for months. I mean, they've been working on this for ages. They said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree that you put in writing. Daniel still prays three times a day. In verse 14, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed, and he was determined, this is the king, he was determined uh, to, to, to rescue Daniel, and made every effort until sundown to save him. You see, it wasn't until this point that Darius even realized what that decree was going to mean for, for Daniel. It's this point that he realized what he had done, and, and, and he's like he, he, he liked Daniel. I mean, he liked this guy. If you remember back at the beginning, he was going to promote him. He'd been watching him. This was a good guy. And, and so he liked Daniel. And he was getting ready to, to move him up. And so you can imagine when the king realizes what he's done, it's like, I got to do something about this. And so he calls in the legal team and he brings in all his, his advisors. Maybe we can find a loophole. Maybe we can find a technicality here that, that will get Daniel off the hook. And so he does that all afternoon and into the evening. Um, just let me give you a little aside here. How many of you think that God could have stepped into the situation right there? Could he have done that? Do you think God could have stepped in and, and stopped the whole thing right there? Like, like Like, was God able to bring this, you know, to bring a resolution at that point? Did Daniel really have to go think about that? Couldn't have God stepped in right there? Yeah, he could. Yeah, he could have stepped in right there. But he chose not to. Now I point that out because typically that's what we pray for. And I would guess that's what Daniel is praying for. It's like, God, find me a way out of this thing. Deliver me, God. Heal my sickness. Restore my marriage. Take this pressure off of me. Find me a way out here, God. I'm sure that's what he'd be praying. And I think it's appropriate to pray that way. That's a good thing, because God often intervenes at that point. That's why we pray. That's why we call out to him, because often that's where he step in. steps in. But listen, not always. Not always. So sundown comes. Verse fifteen, it says, "Then the men went as a group." There they are, still the group of them. The men went went as a group to the king. After the king had tried to find a loophole, and they said to him, "Remember, O king, that according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed." You do remember that, right? You remember that, king. And so, verse sixteen, the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, underline those words, whom you serve continually, that's important. May your God, whom you serve continually, may he rescue you. Verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the Dan and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of the nobles. They wanted to make sure that nobody come back and let Daniel out. So that Dan, they did that so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Ever been there? Ever been to that place where your situation, your fate is sealed? There is no healing this thing. There is no fixing this thing. No changing the situation. No way my situation is going to change. Friends, Daniel's there right now. The stone has been sealed. Daniel's fate has been set. No way it's going to change. No way out of this thing. You're you're in there. It's over for you. There's no changing it. Verse 18. Then the king returned to his palace and Spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he couldn't sleep. And at the first light of dawn, picture this, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's? By the way, there's that phrase again, whom you serve continually. Underline that. But just imagine as that question kind of hangs there in midair. I mean, we know the rest of the story, right? But the king, he hasn't read Daniel chapter 6 yet. So you picture him kind of hanging over that pit. I mean, Daniel's been in there all night with lions, And Darius knows what happens in there. He's seen that before, and yet notice he still asks the question. Makes me think that back at the palace, before all this happened, clearly Daniel had been talking to Darius about how awesome his God was. I mean, obviously he thinks there's some possibility that this guy's still alive, right? Otherwise, why would you ask the question? And so there he is. He's got... He's got his ear up to the pit, and he, and he yells down this question, and I can only imagine that Daniel, if I was Daniel, I would have paused for a bit, you know, just get him thinking. In verse 21, Daniel answers, okay, oh, imagine this, coming back up out of the pit, right? And, and Darius is like, you know, and, and it says, Daniel answered, oh, king, live forever, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong against you, O oh king. It says the king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the pit. That would be an interesting deal, wouldn't it? I bet that didn't happen too often. Who's going to go down there and hand Daniel the rope? You know, How are they going to do this thing? Anyway, they lift Daniel out of the pit. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now before I finish with this story and get to those how-to points, um, let me just address a question that, that I was certainly asking at this point, and, and probably some of you are as well. And the question is simply this, um, why did God shut the mouths of the lions? Why did he do that? More, more importantly, um, more, more personally, uh, how do I get God to respond like that? How do I get God to shut the, lo- the mouths of the lions in my life? Why did, he, why did he do that here? Now, I can hear some of you say, and I, I heard this as a, as a kid um, in Sunday school, well, because God always protects those who stand for him. God always protects those who stand for him. I mean, that's a nice little, I've heard it. But see, the reality of the world that I live in is that's simply not true. That is not what I observe. Often, I see situations where the lions are really biting. If you don't believe me, just think biblically for a minute. Go to Acts 5 and look at what happened to Stephen. God didn't keep the mouths of the lions shut in Stephen's life. You flip over a few pages to Acts 12, read the story of James. We always get excited about what he did for the other apostle. Read what happened to James. The lions were biting. In fact, as I go through the New Testament, every one of the apostles ends up getting devoured somehow, some way. And so don't try and tell me that if I just stand for God, he will protect me from all harm. It's not true. It's not true. Now listen, ultimately, we are delivered through those things into the arms of a loving God. So ultimately, God rescues us as a child of God. He rescues us one way or another. Don't misunderstand that point no doubt about it, we are eventually delivered. But here, I wonder, why did he step in and close them out? Why not just take Daniel home? Let the lions bite, it's all over, he's with Jesus, things are great. Why did he step in? And my first, and and honestly, I think my best answer here is to simply say, you know what, as much as I'm glad for Daniel that he did... Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. Neither do you. In all honesty, I'd be a little concerned if I could figure God out. See, there's some things about God that I just don't understand because He's God. But I do want to offer you three possibilities very quickly here. The first one's there in verse 21. Daniel says, I was found innocent In his sight. I was found innocent in his sight. In other words, Daniel was where he needed to be with God. I think that's important. See, folks, we have no business expecting God to answer my prayer if I am nowhere close to him in my relationship. Way too many people see God as this, you know, genie in my back pocket, and I'll pull him out when I need him and I'll go to him in prayer. It's like, oh, crisis. We have no business expecting God to answer my prayer when we pull him out of our back pocket in a time of crisis. It doesn't work that way. God can still answer in the crisis, but as a believer, we don't function that way. Daniel was innocent. He was in right relationship with God before the crisis, long before. That's important. Secondly, we just read it. Verse 23, notice it says no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I believe there's a faith element in there. I won't go any further on that. What I want you to see, though, is in these last verses, we touched on this a few weeks ago, thirdly, it's simply this, God always answers for his glory and his fame, God's glory, God's fame, that's often why he answers. Notice verse 25. Or verse 26, I issue a decree, this is Darius after Daniel's brought out, he says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. This is Darius, this is the king talking, he says, for he is the living God and he endures forever forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. That message goes out through the kingdom. You talk about God being glorified in this situation. Often, God answers when he gets the glory. I think sometimes that's why, you know, people say, well, how come we never have any real incredible miracles, you know, in North America, and yet you go to some of these other countries, and it's like people are getting raised from the dead, and there's incredible, why is that? I think part of the reason is that if it happened here, everybody in this community would be talking about Heise Hill Church. And all the cool things. You got to get to that building, you got to get to that church, all these incredible things happening. You go to a country like Africa, somebody gets raised from the dead, God gets the glory, God gets the praise. I think that's part of the reason why it happens. God responds for his glory. All right, the how to part. How do I stand for God in the pressure cooker of life? How do I do that? Point number one simply this we need to cultivate character consistently. Cultivate character consistently. Make note of that. Daniel was a man of integrity in the workplace. Way back in verse 3, notice it says he distinguished himself by his exceptional qualities in the workplace. In verse 4, it says they could find no corruption in him. Now, just think about that for a second. Uh, This isn't the guy that's sitting beside him on Sunday morning, all right? This is the people that Daniel works with. They could find no corruption in him. Let me ask you, we'll drag in a bunch of your co-workers here this morning. How many of them would give that response when it comes to your life? See, we all look pretty good here on a Sunday morning, but what about the people that you work with? What would be their commentary? I've worked with him for months. I've worked with her for months. No corruption in that person. Daniel had cultivated character consistently day after day after day friends listen to me faith in the crisis comes from faith in the everyday at work moment by moment and my ability to stand for God when the pressure is on me is related directly related to how I live my life leading up to that crisis remember those two statements that I had you underline there in verse 16 and verse 20 The God whom you serve continually. Friends, that needs to be the pattern of our lives. The God whom you serve continually, not for an hour on Sunday morning, continually. I serve him all the time. Needs to be the pattern of our lives. Always interesting to me um, how how people often turn to God in a time of crisis. And uh, you know what? In all honesty, I'm glad they do. But I'm telling you how people handle their situation in a time of crisis is as different as day and night sometimes. I mean, I've just observed that. And always, when I do a little analysis of the situation, that person that's still standing has cultivated character consistently. They've walked with God. There's been some preparation there time and again. They weren't one way on Sunday morning and someone else the rest of the week. No, they they served God continually, faithfully, day after day. Notice this second thing. How do I stand for God when the pressure's on? Point number two, Daniel got alone with God regularly. Got alone with God regularly. Let's go back to verse 10 for a moment. Notice notice what Daniel does here when he first hears of, of the crisis says when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, actually you know what might might be helpful if you would do this uh, let's let's put your words in there, okay because nobody knows about decree published what you know when I learned that I'd have to lie about the mileage on my car in order to get it sold when I learned the only way out the only way that I was able to sell that motorcycle to that guy is if I give him a phony bill of sale. When the real estate guy told me, uh, don't say anything about the foundation when they come to look. When the girl at work made it really clear her intentions to me and nobody needed to find out. When I learned that in order to get that contract, that building contract, well, I'd have to lie a little bit. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, same deal. You put your words in there. He went home, just as he had done before. He went to his upstairs room, just as he had done before, where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, He got down on his knees just as he had done before and prayed just as he had done before. In other words, Daniel got alone with God regularly. It was the habit of his life, three times a day, every day. Now I can hear some of you here this morning say, well that's just legalism that we have to, we're not under that Old Testament system, we don't have to pray three times a day, get off the legalism thing. You know what? You're right. and I hate legalism. You've got to know my heart on that. But loved ones, listen. Here's the reality. Listen to me. 99.9% of the time when believers fail to stand for God, it's because they failed to establish a regular daily routine of prayer and Bible study in their lives. Now if that sounds like legalism, so be it. I'm telling you, it's the reality. I see it all the time. Christians fail to stand when they fail to get alone with God, when they fail to establish a routine, a discipline. Let me ask you, how's it going in that area of your life? How's it going in that area of your life? Are you doing that? Are you doing that? Are you spending time alone with God regularly? Ah, I get up this morning, I'm running late. I really don't feel like it today. I need to cultivate character consistently and I need to spend time with God regularly. You have to do it, whether you feel like doing it or not. I'm telling you, it makes a difference in your life. I've seen it time and again. Here's the last one this morning. If I want to stand for God, I need to wait on God patiently. I need to wait on God patiently. You see, it's interesting, but after we read about Daniel praying there in verse 10, we don't hear about him saying anything else until he answers the king out of the pit. Did you notice that? Daniel doesn't say anything. In fact, he doesn't say anything in this chapter until you see him calling out from the pit. He's like, I've prayed for this, and I'm going to trust God for eventual deliverance. And I'll just wait patiently. Now, don't misunderstand me. That's not easy to do, and 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 I recognize that. In fact, waiting on God is is, is probably one of the hardest things. It's probably one of the hardest things to do, to wait patiently on God. And if that's you this morning, and you've been doing that, and, and I know many of you have, you've been praying about stuff, and I've been praying about it, and I've been waiting, Jim, I've been waiting. Let me encourage you. Continue to wait. Continue to stand for God. Don't compromise. Don't take the thing into your own hands. It says here in Daniel, he is the living God and he endures forever. You think of this 80 years as being this huge thing? It's like a little dot compared to what God sees. He's the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues. He saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth and he rescued Daniel from the lion's den. He did that. And he's able to rescue you whatever you're going through this morning. Let's pray together.